it's tough, you'll grow. If it's tough, we'll grow. And we'll grow in the Lord. I'm not um, rejoicing in pain or anything like that or a masochist. But it is true. Uh, when there's pressure on believers, they grow. Because you got nothing to hold on to but Jesus. And uh, I'm not saying we're at this point, but uh, Corey Ten Boom said it right. Wonderful sister in the Lord. She says, you don't know until you don't know that Jesus is all you have until Jesus. I'm sorry. This is, is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And um, it's not good to get to that point, uh, you know, to the point where you got nothing else and trust in Jesus. But you can start trusting in Jesus now. But bottom line is we need to trust in Jesus. That's uh, that's the reality of where we are and what we'll do today. Uh, after the Christmas message, there's a lot of people that want to know, okay, what are you going to do? What's New Year's message? You know, what's, um, I'm just going to keep on going. Luke chapter one, we did a couple of Sundays ago, Luke chapter two, a couple of Sundays uh, last week and, uh, Luke chapter three today. And it goes in correspondence because it's John the Baptist and his message. And I said it uh, a couple of weeks ago, before we get to know the message of Jesus, we need to know the message of John. And if you invite the message of John in your heart today, you'll invite Jesus right in. He'll come right in because the road will be made smooth right into your heart. And it doesn't matter if, you, if you're not a believer, if you've been a believer for a long time, we need to clear the road in our hearts for Jesus to come. And uh, he was preparing people for Jesus to come. Can you imagine that? Are we preparing people for Jesus to come now? Same thing. We haven't changed one bit. The Bible is the same yesterday and uh, it will be on. God's word will be forever because... Uh, it, those patterns still repeat. People were getting ready for Jesus to come. We're getting ready for Jesus to come. But what we need is God's word. And so Luke chapter three today, how to get ready for Jesus to come. How to get ready for Jesus to come. The people in this chapter, they had to get ready, my friend. They had to get ready. And the message was clear. He was coming. He was coming to redeem people. He was coming to bring salvation. And the book of Hebrews tells us the same thing, that Jesus is going to come to bring salvation to those who believe. So we're getting ready for Jesus to come. So this message is right for us today. And by the way, don't think of it as um, uh, the Jews quite knew quite well the prophecies of the Old Testament. There were Some of them were very religious. And uh, I come to think that in our nation, there are a lot of people that have heard the message of Jesus. Some of them consider themselves very religious. Uh, but they even, John, they asked John the Baptist, what shall we do? They still didn't know. They had heard it all day long. They heard it so many times. And yet the working out of their faith, their practical living out their faith was something that they did not quite know what to do or how to do it. So they needed John. And that's why God sent John to point the way. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this chapter. It is perfectly, perfectly done to a people that, think they know, but they quite not know what to do. And Lord, we may be in that situation in our nation. They know, but we don't know what to do. We've heard it, but we don't know where to go. We have uh, heard the message many, many times, and yet there seems to be no guidance in our nation. So Lord, I pray we would hear from the prophet, the prophet of God, John, who pointed the way. And Lord, and may we have that in our hearts to be like the John the Baptist, to point the way, or maybe, Lord, we're like the crowd who did not know what to do at that time. So, Lord, we ask you and praise you. Work in our hearts, Lord God, so we will be stirred up, not only to hear it, but know what to do. For at this time, Lord God, we need faith and action working together to meet your will. And we know, Lord, the Holy Spirit will provide the power, so I pray that we'll be open, Lord, 
not only to the message, but to the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit. For without it, Lord, we're powerless, we're guideless, and we don't know what to do. But Lord, with your spirit, we'll know right there. We'll know what to do. We'll know exactly the time and the time to bring the message of God to a people that, know, that need it. So Lord, I pray this morning for your kindness to meet us, for your light to shine, for your word to make way in our hearts so we prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Luke chapter three, verse one. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was also the tetrarch in the region of Eteria or Trachonotis, and Lysanias was the, tre- uh, the tetrarch or Abilene. In the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word came to John the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around Jordan, preaching and baptizing of, uh, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice crying in the wilderness, make ray, ready, make way the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every, ra- every ravine will be filled, every valley will be filled, every mountain and hill will be brought low, the crooked will be made straight, and the rough road smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. And so he began uh, saying to the crowds uh, were, uh, who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you, from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is ready laid at the root of the trees, uh, at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowd were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics, two robes, is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And they said to him, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. So the soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Messiah, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So uh, So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people, the good news. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. Um, He locked up John up in the prison. That's verse 20. And then verse 21, Jesus comes. So all the way up to verse 20. Well, by God's grace, we'll get to it today. We also have uh, baptism. I'm talking about John the Baptist. We also have communion today. So the account of John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer was to bring good news. We read about that last week. The good news of Jesus to come is for all people. Heard about the gospel coming, and that's the word good news. That's what that means. Good news, the gospel. It's the good news of God. God sends a man. God sends a man 
Unlike any other man at that time, he was a voice crying in the wilderness. And this is the beginning of his ministry. And if we're to understand Jesus, we need to understand him. Uh, quite interesting. He's left off of a lot of different accounts, especially the Christmas story. Uh, that's not a pet peeve of one, but I told you that already. We need to bring John into the message of Christmas. I think that's how people would be saved during that time. Jesus said he's the greatest man who ever lived. He is the greatest man who ever lived. And he brought a nation to his knees. Oh, we need a John the Baptist today. We need a John the Baptist to God's people so that they can know what to do at this time. And the wonderful thing or the amazing thing, or I don't know if you think it's wonderful, he did no miracles. Absolutely had no miracles, no signs and wonders. Uh, he maybe would have been disqualified for a lot of ministries today, you know, because uh, we're all into the signs and wonders. He did no miracles, yet people repented. That's the greatest thing the greatest prophet did was he brought people to repentance without miraculous signs. Can you imagine the power of God through his words? He had no need for miraculous signs. People were asking Jesus all the time, show us a sign, show us a sign. And Jesus did those signs to prove he was the Messiah. John did not do any signs. He simply preached God's word and it was sufficient and it was enough. And it was enough to bring people to their knees. But he was filled with the Holy Spirit. There's no doubt since he was a baby, he had the Holy Spirit and he is the greatest prophet of them all. And he's the one that points to Jesus. And it was at the right time. Now, you might consider why all this detail in the first three verses. Quite a bit of details. In fact, if you're a history, you love this. If, you don't, if you're a history fan, you love this. If you don't like history, uh, like I always say, tune out for a few minutes and uh, we'll get you back on. 400 years of silence since Malachi had preached. Since Second Chronicles, the last book in the Jewish Old Testament, in the Jewish Bible, that's the last book found in the Old Testament in the Jewish Bible, our, our last book is Malachi, but he was the last prophet. And God's people had turned... Deaf to God's word and judgment came. And Malachi said, this is my last word to you. The refiner is going to come. There will be a prophet. There will be a, a one who would come like Elijah. And then the day of the Lord will come. And they didn't know quite well what to do with that. But in comes John the Baptist. And people needed direction. They didn't know really what to do. They were in a, a very, very difficult state. And, um, and I think for us today, it's the same thing. God's people are very confused. Is this view? Is that view? Is this other view? They don't know what to say, what to believe. What are we to believe in? Christians, 10, 30 years old in the Lord, saying, Pastor, I don't even know what to believe anymore. People say this and people say that. I said, well, what does the word say? I'm not saying that I know it all, but I'm just saying, what does the word say? People are going to say a lot of things, and people were saying a lot of things. 400 years of silence during that time, and here comes six different kinds of dates for this time. Let's look at verse 1. In the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar... A man began to preach in the wilderness. But what does this all mean? 15th year, Tiberius. Then there's a governor, Pontius Pilate. Then there's Herod. Then there's his brother. All these things was to show us a couple of things. One, this is a historical fact. Uh, all these people existed in history, and you can prove it beyond the Bible. Uh, the country was in flux. It was a country that was in flux. It was a nation that was in flux. Because all these things had changed. Octavian had died. Octavian had died in 14 AD. Octavian is Caesar Augustus. He's the guy on the left there. And uh, he had gone and he had been a decent Caesar, a decent emperor. He brought, uh, he brought Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. He brought the census. He brought soldiers into the army. He did a lot of things that on the outside you could say seemingly good. But he also caused a lot of things to change in Rome. He was the first Caesar to, be, to begin to be worshipped as the son of God. People turned to this cult practice of uh, Caesar worship. And he brought that on, but he had died, and a worse man had come. 
Worst in Octavian was Tiberius. There's a guy on the right, bottom right. Octavian, uh, Tiberius, he was worst. He was immoral. He began to uh, conspire to bring moral rottenness to the, to the empire of Rome and uh, corruption and decay. And this was, many historians will say, this was the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of the Roman Empire uh, because every Caesar after that was either homosexual or bisexual and, uh, and worshipped as God, the son of Zeus, Apollo incarnate, and the decline was in. Yet these men were called saviors. Yet these men were called um, the prince of peace. Yet these men were called redeemers. Those are all titles given to Caesar. And the power of Rome was waning, was waning. And this is a time where God says, now the gospel needs to come in. When there's corruption and there's all kinds of terrible things happening at the top, the gospel needs to come in. But it wasn't just in Rome. It was also in Judah. It says Pontius Pilate was a governor of Judah and Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee. Herod was the king. It says in Luke 1, he was Herod the king and he was gone. And so the nation had no king. And so Rome decided to bridged out or divide the Galilee and Judea and the Israel and the land of Israel to his four sons. Two are mentioned here right off the bat, Herod and Philip. Herod, of course, is the one that we know in Scripture as Herod Antipas. He was the one against John the Baptist. He's mentioned at the end of this chapter. And he's also the one that did uh, persecuted Jesus and his ministry and eventually stood before, Jesus stood before Herod at that time. Herod Antipas. And he was a terrible, took up to his father, Herod the Great. He didn't do the great things Herod the Great did with uh, buildings, but he was a terrible man. And he ruled over Galilee. And he ruled over the areas of the east of the Jordan River, the Jordan Valley. So you see in the Gospel of Jesus, sometimes Jesus is in certain areas, certain areas of Galilee, certain areas of the Jordan Valley. And uh, just watch, when, and we're not going to get into it today, but just watch what Jesus does when he's in certain areas. There's a very good reason he does certain things is because he was in certain places that was dangerous and he needed to, sometimes he got out of there very quickly. And he went over to the area what we call today the Golan Heights. And this is where his other brother, Herod's brother, son of Herod the Great, was Philip. And Philip was a much more peaceful man, was a much uh, uh, compassionate man. And he ruled over the area of the Golan Heights, way up in the Galilee, right by Syria. And uh, the city was called Caesarea Philippi. You see Jesus going there. And many times Jesus goes there to find peace. He was persecuted by Herod and the religious leaders down in Judea, down in the Galilee area. And he goes up to the Golan Heights to retreat with his uh, disciples. Why? Philip was actually a very peaceful man. He actually did not persecute Jesus. And he had this area called Caesarea Philippi uh, called Panias. I think, it's so, I think it's called Banias today, but it's where you find the area by Mount Hermon. This is the area where Jesus went up to his transfiguration. But lower in the south, Samaria and Judah, terrible sons, absolutely terrible, enough that the Bible tells us here that Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Enough to tell you Rome hated these two brothers of uh, Herod Antipas, the sons of Herod the Great. And therefore, they replaced them with Pontius Pilate a governor, no king. Actually, you can see the word tetrarch there. It means a quarter. Uh, all these sons had different quarters. Some had this area, some had th uh, that area, and they were never called kings. And there's a specific reason for that. They were not like his father, Herod the king. They were simply holdovers, tetrarchs. There were only regional rulers of that area. It is important because there was no king in Israel. 
And Jesus was supposed to be the king. And what did God do? Within 29 years or so, began to wipe the, the, the slate clean. No challenger to the throne of Jesus. The second thing we see is in verse 2. The high priest, Annas and Caiaphas. Annas and Caiaphas. And the word of God came to John. Now, Annas and Caiaphas, the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And this is quite interesting because they were both high priests at the same time. And it happened because the Bible says there was only one high priest at a time. They serve until they die. And so the Jewish people recognized Annas. He was the older one. And he was a good high priest to a, uh, to a degree. He had uh, his convictions. Some of them were not very good, but he still had convictions. The Romans did not like him. And so what did they do? They replaced him with a man named uh, Caiaphas. And Caiaphas was not exactly, if the Romans choose you, you know you got a problem. He was not exactly the kindest man. And Caiaphas did not do well. He was the nephew of Annas. He was the nephew of Annas. And so the Jews did not like Caiaphas. He preferred Annas. The Romans preferred Caiaphas over Annas. And there was this whole argument about who's the high priest. Because they have to serve until they die, the Jews never accepted Caiaphas. But the Romans did. And so because there was a confusion about priesthood, they really constituted as there was no priest. It was a divided priesthood. Who's the high priest? Will the Romans say this guy? The Jews say that guy? None of them were really good qualifiers, but the Jews accepted Annas. So there was no king and no true priest. No king and no true priest. And this is what God was doing, preparing the way for his son. Why? Because Jesus would become both, both king and priest. No challenger. God was preparing the way. So all this information, it's not useless. It's simply useful to know. God was clearing the deck, you could say. We need a king and we need a priest. And chaos and confusion reign at that time. Who do we listen to? Well, it depends where you are. You go to this area, you go to that area, you go to this region. Well, who do we listen religiously? Well, nobody knows. Caiaphas says this, Annas says this, and everything is a mess. And everything is a mess. But in that mess, God sends his son. He was preparing the way. And so when chaos and confusion has ruled the land, expect God to do something. Just expect it. God's going to do something. He's done it all, all the time. And it's time for God's message as we get into 2021. So many things have changed. I've sat here. I, I didn't preach 52 times this year. I might have been out a couple of times, maybe 48. I don't remember, 47. But anyway, the 52 Sundays that we met, um, it went fast. And I'm sure you could see that. It went fast. So many changes, so many things. Sometimes we had no people here, just a camera. Sometimes we were outside. Sometimes we were here. Sometimes it, it just and people confused and fear and rain throughout the land. Still does. And who knows what we'll be like in six months. Who knows? I don't know. Uh, I think more confusion is going to come. And I think more people are going to be spiritually confused and politically uh, despondent. They won't know what to do. But don't worry. It is time for God to step in, as he always has, as he always has. When humans make such a mess, God sends this man, John. And John says, get ready. John says, get ready, because even a world of violence, you know how violent Judah was at that time? They had these men called the, 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 the uh, what do they call this, Zakir, the Zakir. Uh, they were the dagger men. They were the zealots. They were the men who held the sword, who violently attacked Romans and the traitors, the traitors that collaborated with Rome. It was a mess at that time. Violence and wars, 
you realize that during this time, it was the preparation for war. Uh, they had this gap of about 30-some years uh, because 70 AD would come, but the zealots are going to come and they're going to try to dethrone Rome right out of history. And they couldn't, and they didn't, until Rome decided to destroy the whole temple, 70 AD, and eventually 100 AD with Hadrian. This Jerusalem was completely destroyed and nobody lived there. But there was this message. There was this message. In a world of violence, God is preparing people to work right into their hearts. So what do you need? You have a king, you have a priest in Jesus, you need a prophet. You need a prophet to speak God's word. This is what John comes in, the prophet of Israel. And the message was for Israel, by the way. The message was for Israel, and the Bible makes it very clear it was him who was going to turn the hearts of the people back to, the, back to their fathers, back to the Lord, and their children back to their fathers, and the fathers to their children. And he spoke to the ordinary people. They came. Uh, verse 3, And he came to the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. He began to preach. Nobody knew exactly the date, but it was around this time. And uh, there might have been nobody there because in the wilderness, nobody lives there. Goats and shepherds. And it might have been the shepherds who heard the message first. And then they call their friends and say, hey, did you hear that guy preaching out there? He sounds really good. He's telling us to repent. Well, does anyone know what that means? I don't know, man. The priest says this, the priest says that. Who knows? But he sounds right. <laughs> you know, there's always truth when it hits you. You know it's the truth. You could deny it, you can, you know, uh, kind of put a lid on it, but you know it's the truth and you have to do something with it. And they began to tell others, and his message, look at his message, his message came, repentance and for the forgiveness of sin. He did not begin with their feelings. It's one thing I noticed about John. He was different than pre preachers today, different than pastors today. He doesn't begin with their feelings or their needs or their dreams or their hopes. He begins with the one thing that they ultimately have to have, forgiveness of sin. See, man chases after everything. And they go to church and they say, well, I want to feel good, so I go to church. They want to feel good. It's not what you need. <laughs> they go, I just want to be entertained. Maybe the pastor's funny or whatever. The message makes me feel, you know, sort of humorous. That's not what you need. Or maybe what you need is just that you need, just need to find yourself. Yeah. That's not what you need. What man ultimately needs is forgiveness of sin. That's the hardest thing to do, right? Because in order to have forgiveness of sin, there needs to be something that accompanies that. That is repentance. Oh, and don't say that word, pastor. We're going to walk right out. You say that again. Repentance. It has to be specific. Notice in this passage today, there's specific things John deals with. Been to prayer meetings, God, forgive me of all my sins. Forgive me of all my sins. Very few people that I say, Lord, forgive me for my temper. Forgive me for my gossip. Forgive me for my lust and forgive me for my greed and forgive me for my whatever. Amen. Very few, you notice that. John gets down to brass tacks. What is it that keeps you from the Lord? What are those sins that keep you from God? What could they be? Well, he says, forgiveness of sin, that's the blotting out of sin. The blotting out of sin. And he was in this area right here, right by Jericho, right by Jerusalem, by the, by the Dead Sea. Forgiveness of sin, blotting it out. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news that Jesus would come eventually and take them away. Forgiveness of sin, he says, you need to repent. You need repentance. That's the turning away from sin. That's not just saying, I'm sorry. That's saying, I'm sorry enough to turn. 
I'm sorry enough not to continue to do it. That's repentance. It's not just a change of mind, as some people have erroneously said. It's not just a change of mind. It does have that, that you actually do have to change your mind. That is true. But if there's no change of direction, the changing of mind won't do anything. People sit on repentance in their mind for quite a long time. I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do this. But they go back and they go back and they go back. But they don't do anything with their actions. And John was going to deal with their actions. To turn away, be sorry enough to stop. Know that it's wrong and turn away. And he has a baptism. The Jews knew quite about baptism. They had these rituals all the time, these cleansing rituals, which symbolize that they need to be clean before the Lord. And, and so, but this is not in Jerusalem. This is not in the vast pools and the great pools that they had in Jerusalem, but it was actually in a very dirty river out in the wilderness. But it was still a public turning, a public turning away from sin and an inward attitude that is visible. I have turned. I am visibly going to show you that I have turned inwardly as well as outwardly. And that's a response to the gospel. But it's not the baptism of, into Jesus yet. It is a baptism of John. It's the baptism of John. The baptism of Jesus is very interesting. It's mentioned here. And it's not what we ought to, you know, we sometimes think. Is it just baptism in water and say the name of Jesus? Oh, it's part of that, but it's more than that. Because he says he's coming to give you someone. He's coming to give you someone. Not doing something, just coming to give you someone. And that person is coming later. And that's the person of the Holy Spirit. But he's by the Jordan River. And uh, scholars have argued, why here? I mean, why in this little place here? You know, it seems to be out of nowhere. It's, 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 a, it's a great river. But by the time it gets to the Dead Sea, it's pretty dirty, actually. Uh, as you get to the Dead Sea, the closer you get, there's even foul orders in that area. Uh, but this is the lowest point of the earth, the lowest point of the earth. Perhaps you needed to go to the lowest to get to Jesus. I don't know. But I don't think it's all that, although that could be. What I do think is, is because this is where they crossed. This is where they cross. In the book of Joshua, chapter 3, this is where Israel made the commitment that they were going to go into the promised land. Moses couldn't go. He had sinned against the Lord, but he could see it. He could see the promised land from afar. But this is where Joshua took them in. See, Moses can lead you up to the land, but it only Joshua, only Joshua can bring you in. The law can show you the way to God. That's Moses. But only Jesus can bring you in. That's Joshua. Joshua is basically the Hebrew name of Jesus. Only Jesus can bring you into the promised land. Moses can show you the way. The law can point you to what is right and what is wrong and what God is pleasing and what God's not pleasing with. But only Jesus can bring you in. And so Joshua comes into that area and it says, before we cross, we need to get things right with God. And they begin to repent and they begin to turn back to the Lord. And they make a commitment. We're going to follow the Lord right into the promised land. And Joshua comes in and he says, all right, God, who do you want it to lead? You just follow me the Lord said, because the first one to go into were the priests, and they had to carry the ark. Of course, was a symbol of Jesus, was a symbolic of Jesus leading in the way, and they had to follow him from a certain distance, and it tells you all, it's very specific. We're going to go through that. It takes a long time, but very specific, the distance that they had to keep, who was going to go first, everything the Lord sets up correctly, and there was a promise that the children of Israel would come back. This was what it was. It was a renewal, a renewal of the covenant to the doorway of the promised land, John comes back. It's like, remember the days. Remember the marriage? It's like a marriage, right? It's a relationship. Marriage goes into a bad spot, and, and, and you begin to think back. Oh, if we could only go back 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, when we were in love, when we had this wonderful time. And so couples begin to think, and they begin to act out in that way. And this is what God's doing. Remember when we were in love. 
remember when you said yes and you walked right into my home that I gave you. And uh, this is going back. So the crossing of the Jordan here is very important. Uh, has also other meanings, but we won't get to that. Uh, Elijah and Elisha and the splitting of the Jordan and things like that. We won't get to that another time. Uh, but this is John had the calling. Look at verse four. As it is written in the book of Isaiah, the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice crying in the wilderness. Where did it come from? Where does this calling come from? It wasn't recent. It was 700 years before. God gave Isaiah a wonderful, a wonderful scripture about a man, John the Baptist. Doesn't mention it by name, but uh, the angel said this is going to be the one. God said this is going to be his marking was be what John, what the, uh, Isaiah said, that the prophet would come and he'll make a way. If you ever read the book of Isaiah, it's quite interesting. 39 chapters of judgment and seems to be no hope. Uh, 27 chapters later, there was no chapter division at the time, but 27 chapters, the next 27 chapters is all about hope. It's all about hope and comfort, right? Just like the Bible, 39 books in the Old Testament shows us that God is angry at sin and who he is and how fall, how short we've fallen of his glory and of his grace. The next 27 chapters are all about Jesus, his comfort, his love, his forgiveness, the fulfillment of the law and his righteousness given to us. But it's quite interesting. That's the way Isaiah's as the way it says, uh, it's set up, 39 chapters, judgment, judgment, judgment. People aren't doing right. And it just seems like, oh boy, nations are not doing right. Kings are not doing right. Priests are not doing right. Pastors are not doing right. People are not doing right. And he said, boy, there's any hope. Yes, chapter 40, come for my people. Come for my people, Israel. And there'll be a voice crying in the wilderness. It starts with John. It starts with John for about 10 chapters. I mean, the, the calling of John, not only the calling of John, but the calling of God back to himself. And then you get to the songs, Songs of the Servant, chapter 52 to 55. You know what those chapters are all about? Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 54, the songs of the servant. That's about Jesus, his death, his resurrection, all laid out right there in Isaiah. And then it sort of switches again. Chapter 60, it's all about the new Jerusalem. And it ends with the magnificent words in Revelation. I make heaven a new heaven and a new earth. I make all things new, Isaiah 66. So it's all there. It's like God compressed it in a, in a little format, the Bible, in a book of Isaiah. Wonderful chapter. We're not here to talk about Isaiah, but he did prophesy that the calling of John was the beginning. It was the beginning of the New Testament. It was the beginning of the new covenant. It was the beginning to make right, to make right the road into your heart. Oh, this is so important. To make smooth roads into your heart. So the Lord can come right in. That's the point of John. He was removing all the barriers. He's removing all the things that are there keeping you away from Jesus through repentance and an urgent call. So why did God pick this time when Tiberius was king and uh, Caesar and, and Pontius Pilate was the governor? Time has come for all men to know. Time has come for all men to see the salvation of the Lord. John was the man preparing them. And his message, well, his message wasn't, um, let's just say he wasn't into, uh, um, he didn't care too much about losing congregations. Let's put it that way. Uh, he didn't fear losing anybody. Um, he knew his calling. He knew his from the Lord. He knew that God had called him to preach a message. And his message was began like this. So he began to say, you to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, you snakes. Now, if I came up here and called you a bunch of snakes, I don't think you would like me too much. You might leave. You might say, what, what's wrong with them? You have too much eggnog this, uh, this weekend. 
the other kind of eggnog, uh, all kinds of things like that. What's wrong with them? But because he didn't fear, he didn't fear the congregation, he was able to say that. I think every pastor has to go through that. Every pastor thinks about it. Every pastor, and I know that because it's a huge temptation for me and for other pastors that I know, even pastors who have sat here. Uh, how far do I go before I get people riled up and upset at me? Uh, now, we're not trying to say it just to get people upset. But if it was what the Lord says, then let it be with the Lord. What's his message? Brood of vipers, judgment's coming. You snakes, you treacherous snakes, judgment's coming. Um, and then he says about those who would be spared. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you and flee from the wrath to come. Right out of, uh, right into, I should say, the uh, Pilgrim's Progress. This is where John Bunyan got that. Who flee, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, these were people coming to John. These were not people way out there. And, you know, these were not the, necessarily the, the pagan Roman uh, people. These were God's people coming and they were hearing and they were saying, yes, I agree. But they needed to know what they, what they needed to do. They needed to know who they are. They needed to know who they are. And he told them, judgment was coming, but you could be spared. You could be spared. And don't think, now let's listen to this, verse 8. Therefore, bear fruits keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say, we have a heritage. We are from Abraham. He is our father. And I say to you, these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Don't talk about your background. Don't think about your background. It has nothing to do with salvation. My dad was a preacher. Grandpa was a preacher. No, my dad was not. And my grandpa were not. Far from it. But people say that. People say that. Um, you know, I come from a family of Christians. Oh, I've heard it, Pastor, many times, you know. I go home, we pray, and we hear it. And I, my dad, granddaddy told me about this. So why are you still there? <laughs> why are you still in that situation? Uh, because they think they're okay. They think they're okay because of their heritage. Uh, many, many people, especially in, in America, um, come from Christian families. Christian grandparents prayed for them. And they rely on it as if that's their way into the kingdom. That's their way into salvation. Um, Christian parents and Christian grandparents are wonderful things. A great advantage. But it won't matter one bit unless you turn to Jesus. It won't matter one bit unless, I mean, it would matter to them. They're going to be saved. But God has no grandchildren. You have to be a child of his. You have to be his own child. And I, I, I do explain it, and I try to explain it to my kids. Because the tendency, especially for Christian parents and Christian grandparents and Christian ministers and pastors is, your kids have heard it all. They've heard it many, many times. Oh, it's just dad. Oh, it's just grandpa. Oh, it's just that. Oh, you know. Uh, heard him, and they could become inoculated to a certain degree from the message of the gospel. And therefore, John is a good way to start. Don't think your heritage means anything. Don't think that you come from a Christian background is going to do you any, any good. It might be a good advantage, but unless you turn to Jesus, it won't do you any good. In fact, the Jews thought that. The Jews thought that, that because they were children of Abraham, God automatically would let them in. Look at our heritage. We're not the pagans of Rome. We're not the pagans of the Canaanites. They behaved like them, but they still didn't see it. They still said, our background and heritage, it's much more important than that. And don't think rituals are going to do you any good. Look what it says. Um, for you to say that you are, uh, God is able to raise up stones. Uh, God is able to raise up children from these stones. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. The outward ceremony is not going to help. You religious leaders, uh, you know, coming in to 
to church or the temple was a ritual that they did all the time. They went to the feast. They did it all the time. It was not going to do them any good because they were Jews. And because they were Jews, they did the rituals, but the rituals themselves wasn't salvific. They, they, they didn't save you. It was faith in the fact that those things led to the Messiah who would take away your sins. This is back to Leviticus and all the things that they did. And God is looking for something more than rituals. What is God looking for? It's the word right there. He is looking for righteousness. He is looking for the fruit. He is looking for people that are right with God. Now, this is something very interesting. The axe is ready to chop down. God is looking for the fruit. And ultimately, who, whose righteousness are we going to have? Whose righteousness are we going to have? And this is, of course, all in a lot of books in the New Testament. Talk about righteousness, yours or Christ. And the one from Christ is the one you need. And that's the one that won't get you into judgment. But righteousness, which one do we have today? And John's message is exactly this. What you need to do. And the crowds begin to ask. See, after this kind of message, you begin to say, you begin to question, well, I, I, I am a Jew. I'm not supposed to trust in my Jewishness. I'm not supposed to trust in my rituals. I'm not supposed to trust in the in my own righteousness. So the natural question is, tell us, John. And John gets right to the brass tacks. Verse 10, the crowds were questioning him saying, then what shall we do? Natural question, just like in Acts, just like in Philippians, basically saying, what must we do to escape this judgment? There must have been really a sincere tugging at the heart there. And see, this is a critical part. Unless there's, some preachers would have just said, okay, just say, close your eyes. Close your eyes, repeat this prayer, you'll be all right. John doesn't do that. John's a very different kind of preacher, isn't he? Very different. Maybe he wouldn't be allowed to preach today. What is God looking at? First of all, he's looking at us. And he doesn't look at us the same way we look at ourselves. See, John said, brood of vipers, uh, who told you to escape? You know, that's the prophetic word of God. That's God's word and prophecy or or and bringing forth the word of God, not prophecy of the future, but uh, the prophetic word to people. God speaking through this man that unless you're willing to change your view about yourself, you won't be able to come in. Because people ought to think, well, I'm not a snake, am I? Well, you know, God calls us a lot of different things in the Bible. He calls us adulterers, calls us sinners, calls us, you know, pe people with double-mindedness. I mean, sometimes these things are like people get offended by them. But whose view do we have? Well, my view is I'm actually a pretty good person. You know, I don't do what other people do. But God says, well, I, I see everything. I see the whole thing. I see the whole thing, your thoughts, your inward thoughts, your motives. And, um, and God's dealing with you know, religious people. God's dealing with people that knew and ultimately had heard the message before from the priest. And um, what God wanted is real faith, real faith in God. And that begins by looking at yourself from the way God looks at us. Can you imagine God telling us, you brood of vipers? God, is that you? <laughs> you know, you look at the seven letters to seven churches in the book of Revelation, and Jesus comes out and says, you know, very strong things to these churches. They thought they were doing fine. They thought they were doing just fine. They, they had good works. They had put out things that were right. And yet God says, mm, you're tolerating things. You're allowing things in your church, in your life, in your congregation that are not good, that are not right. And uh, there's immorality and there, there's no heart behind the worship. There's no heart behind the commitment of the works that you do. There's no heart. 
There's action, but there's no heart. And God can look at that much better than we can look at ourselves. And this is why we need to get the view from God. God, what do you see? You ever ask that? I think people are afraid of asking that. They do because uh, God may tell you the truth. You might not like it. You know, John, uh, 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 David was very honest with God. God, search in me. Look at my heart. Amen. Look at my actions and see if there's any wicked way in me. And God will show them. John, uh, you think of John. David, do this, change this. And David would go through this repentance. This, this, this tremendous, read Psalm 51. Of course, he did terrible things. But he had repentance and God was able to lift him up. And so it begins with God. It begins with who is God in your life? You know, who, who is God? What do you, talk, you talk about God a lot, but who is he? You hear about him, but who is he? And many times people can come to church for 40, 30 years, and, and God's a stranger to them. They're, they're accustomed with the, the service. They're accustomed with ceremonies and rituals and things like that. But week in and day out, they come in, and they have no fellowship with God. They have no relationship with God at all whatsoever. They go to Bible study. They go to fellowship, but nothing happens. They just same person comes in, in and out every Sunday. Or every week. I met a lady. Uh, she was involved in Lutheranism for 40 years. 40 years. Did a lot of stuff for women's ministry. Uh, she had her picture up in the, you know, the rafters or whatever they do. And, uh, you know, she was recognized as a very important part of, she was not born again. She was not born again until I met her. Right before I met her, she had become a Christian. And she had, um, I spent a, maybe a few years uh, in other churches, but finding, trying to find the Lord. And, and I met her and it was wonderful. Wonderful to know. And she said she could see now. She could see what it was for 40 years. Now, this is not unusual. You probably met people like that in your life. Met another lady not too long ago, a couple weeks ago. Uh, same thing, 20-some years in a denomination. I didn't know what it was. Um, never born again. Did all the rituals that took communion and all this stuff. Don't know the Lord. Did not know salvation. There was no change in her life. Just week in and day out. And he says it bothered me at one time that I was the same person. After 30 years, I still did all these things. There's no change, no heart. Here is what John the Baptist comes us to say. Look at this and says, what do we do? Well, verse 11. And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics, share with him who has, uh, who has none. And he who has food, do likewise. Sin and righteousness. Begin to look at sin and begin to look at righteousness. And very practical righteousness here. So you want to be born again. Start by repenting. Turn to Jesus. Now remember, this is before the ministry of Jesus. So you have to take into account that this is what God required of them in that capacity to turn from sin onto righteousness. And that righteousness has to be very practical. Now it, does, it doesn't contradict the gospel. It actually supports the gospel. Because these are people that were ready to be baptized, ready to know what to do, to believe in Jesus. The Messiah was to come. They even asked him in verse 15, are you the Messiah? They were questioning when themselves, why wow, he's powerful preaching. He must be the Messiah. He kind of set him straight after that. But to give. So let's look at the first one. To the crowd, he says, learn to give. Learn to give and learn to give practically. This is the fruit of righteousness that God wants. See, we're talking about practical things here. You know, remember John could have said, close your eyes, say this prayer, and you're good. No, he says, you, you want to repent? You truly are repented? Okay, let's see if God's working in your life. Let's see if you can turn from sin. And John says, put it into action. Practical means. You have two coats, give one away. Practical. Uh, I wonder what John would say if he looked into our closet today. 
Hey, got a lot of those. Get rid of them. Get rid to the ones you need. And you have more, give them away. Uh, if you have food, do the same. Do the ones that needs it. And that is for the work of the gospel. You can start giving to the work of the gospel. It is the fruit of repentance. You know what it is? A loving heart. Amen. A loving heart. Isn't that what the Bible says? Without love, we're nothing. But how does love is demonstrated? By practical means. Selfishness goes away. To walk in real faith and real life, love has to be there. And a love for your neighbor. And those are exactly what the Bible says. In the book of Luke, same, same chapter, oh, same book, chapter 5, verse 28, the calling of Matthew. The calling of Matthew. And he converted. He became from a convert to a disciple. And I think that's the key part there. So many converts, very little disciples. So many converts, very little disciples. And this disciple takes on the calling of his master to love. In this case, to be generous. It's an important aspect of it. Isn't part of that kindness and the fruit of the Spirit, mercy and love, to be generous? To be generous with the things you have. Time, finance. Give all you have to the work of the Lord. Why? Because this is how we demonstrate to the Lord that we have changed. It's a big thing, isn't it? Oh, pastor, I don't have time. Is the Lord worth your time? Is the Lord worth our time? People make all kinds of stuff, right? I can't do this. I can't do that. And the mark of the gospel over a disciple is to give to the Lord. And this becomes very difficult. My time, my things. Isn't it hit at the heart of selfishness? That's all it is. That's what John is pointing at. We're already selfish enough. The marks of a disciple is to love God and to use all that you have for his sake. And people send uh, and people give. People give to the Lord. Of course, we couldn't have a ministry without people giving to the Lord. Uh, but it's hard for people to give sometimes. It's hard for people to give, not because they don't have it. It's hard for people to give because they haven't entered into this discipleship, this generosity, this kindness that God wants from our lives. Uh, I'll, I'll prove a point. People love to spend things on things they like. And people have no problem with things they like. I can honestly tell you that uh, hobbies or entertainment, whatever people are involved in, whatever you're involved in, whatever... I know a friend, $30,000, no big deal. Put down a check for what he likes. Now, yeah, I might not have $30,000, but uh, you may or may not, but, you, you, but $300, think about that. And he said, you have no problem. Oh, I love this stuff, whether it's vacations or entertainment or maybe a new car or um, you know, people spend money on all kinds of stuff, uh, hobbies, entertainment, no problem, $30,000. I love that stuff. Um, brother, there's a brother in need. Oh, pray about it. I'll pray about that. Let me know. Let me know how it goes. And they have a hard time with it. Why? Well, the things that you like, you love to spend. No problem. Right to check out. Things that uh, you're not used to or things that you have a hard time with. Ugh, right? And that is the Lord working in our hearts to give to the Lord's work. Now, this is not a plea for money or anything like that this year. I don't care if you give it here or give it somewhere else. But you need to be generous. The kindness of the Lord working in our hearts. You begin to drive out the fear and anxiety of the world. What does the world care about? What am I going to have tomorrow? What am I going to have the next day? Who's going to take care of me? The disciple says, I know who's going to take care of me. And the resources are for the Lord. They commit to the Lord's work and God begins to move. Seriously, God begins to move. Very practical is John. Now, I'm not making any of this up to get money out of anybody. It's the same what John said. You have something, give it away. 
You have more than others? Learn to give. Learn to be generous, practical. Give of our earthly treasure so God can give you heavenly ones. Isn't that great? Isn't that awesome? God stores up heavenly treasures for us, and it's fundamental what Jesus taught us. That's the very reason. Our resource, our time, our skill, all given to the kingdom of God. Let's continue, because there's not the only ones who came up to him. Verse 12. The tax collectors came and to be baptized, and they said to him, same thing, what shall we do? And John said to them, collect no more than what you have, and you've been ordered to. That's quite interesting. Now, they were the ultimate outcast. They were Jews, just like them, but they had sold out to the Romans and became their collaborators. They collected the taxes that Rome wanted, but because they had no salary, Rome said, hey, we want this much for us, the Roman Empire, for the armies and for the roads. You collect the rest for yourself. So you can charge whatever you want. As long as we get our cut, you get your cut. And uh, so they, they charged exorbitant amount. It wasn't just to live with their livelihood. You know, you need something for your livelihood. Charge that. No, they charged outrageous, outrageous, to the point where they became very wealthy. And because they were Jews collaborating with Rome, they looked at as traitors. Even the rabbis at the time says, you can lie to a tax collector and God will forgive you because they're so evil and so wicked. They deserve to be lied to. That tells you what kind of people they were. And in the middle of all this, they come. Now you see them in the, you know, John sees them coming in. Tax collectors. Something was bothering them. I'm sure Matthew, something had bothered Matthew that he picked up all his stuff and followed Jesus. He left all his stuff, as you say. He left all his stuff, picked up himself, and went and followed Jesus. No questions asked. His heart had been prepared by John the Baptist about the generosity and about, of course, uh, following Jesus and the tax collectors. Zacchaeus also must have been touched by the message of John the Baptist. You see Zacchaeus up on a tree. Uh, many people wonder why he's up on a sycamore tree. Uh, I think he was very practical. I think he was hiding from the people that were going to hurt him. A lot of people got stabbed in Israel at that time, especially collaborators. You know, you get a mob of people, somebody comes in, you're stabbed, you're dead. Uh, he was short, so he couldn't see anything, so he had to get up on a tree, but he was probably escaping a lot of this uh, attacks that were coming against the, uh, the, 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 the tax collectors. But anyway, tax collecting, they collected for Rome. Charge whatever you want, the Roman said. John says, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Greed, greed. And by the way, they could, because they were collaborators with Rome, they can use the, the, the soldiers for whatever they wanted. So uh, if they didn't like somebody, they can go to the house, got some Roman soldiers with me, and uh, you haven't paid your taxes. I'm going to take your couch, or I'm going to take whatever I want from you because you have not paid your taxes. They had that kind of power. And whatever they wanted to do, Rome was behind them. What kind of power, isn't it? But what does the prophetic voice says? Only do what you're called to take, or to, to uh uh, to order, collect what you've been uh, ordered to do. What does that mean? Learn to be honest. Learning to be honest. Have integrity. Develop a ministry of truth. Well, oh, this is so important, isn't it, for Christians? To be honest. Learn to be obedient and truthful in your life. And it's overcoming. It is very difficult. Maybe in your family, yeah, you learn how to do certain things. Maybe in your job, you learn how to do certain things. And... Um, but now as a Christian, you say, Lord, I need to change. And part of that is truth and honesty, an honest tax collector. Oh, would that be a great testimony? An honest tax collector. That would have been a, what? <laughs> uh, it would have been amazing at the time. That's why Matthew, remember Matthew, where do you find Matthew at? Having people over his house. Having people over his house. Why? People couldn't believe it. I got to check this out. 
that guy says he's a Christian now, and that guy's not charging as much, I have to go see him. He'll be my accountant now. He's an honest accountant. And that's the way they looked at Matthew. It's the power of God working within him. Learning to be honest is very difficult. All right? Learning to be honest is very difficult. But you could, if you are, God's power will work in your life. People would see it. And maybe it will take a whole lifetime to overcome some of the greed and dishonesty. But God is working. And you need to give that up. Learning to be content with what you have. Because an honest tax collector, guess what? He earned very little. He earned very little. So learning to be content with what you have, it's the mark of the true disciple. It's the mark of the true disciple. That's really at the heart of this. Trustworthiness, an honest heart. Well, here comes the soldiers, verse 14. Some soldiers came questioning and saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And they said to him, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. The soldiers were the ultimate uh, worldly people. They were violent. They were bullies. Because they had a carte blanche in, the, in Rome, they could do whatever they wanted when they were in, uh, well, they were not in Rome, they were in Judah. And they would come and ask people, and they could literally tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, I compel you. And you would have to carry his bags, his, basically his soldier stuff, all his equipment. And that's what Jesus said. If somebody asks you to go a mile, double it up, go with them too. Why? Because that's exactly what the Romans did. The soldiers would come, I compel you, carry my stuff. And they were bullies. And John says, the message is for those who take advantage of others. Don't use your position. Don't use your position to use people above and beyond. They were expected to be aggressive and forceful like bullies. And uh, so John says, restrain yourself. Don't use people. Um, don't take money from anybody by force. They, they did that all the time. Or accuse anyone falsely. They can raise up an accusation. People believe them. Be honest. Be restrained. The word here is the idea of meekness. Meekness. Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the meek. Same thing. Blessed are the meek. It's the, the picture of a war horse. Was all this power ready to go, but is controlled by this master who rides on it. And that's what it is. And I think I could only apply it, not only, but the way I, I thought about it was people that have this strong personalities as Christians. You know, there are people that have a very strong personality uh, who have been strong all their life, who, who tell people what to do. That's them. It's been raised that way. And now they're a disciple of Jesus. What does Jesus say? Be gentle. Love others. How are we going to do that? I've been doing it all my life. I tell people what to do. Don't push anybody into doing anything. Gentleness, gentleness, and meekness. How important is it to get your way? See, that's at the bottom of it, at the heart of it all is how important is it to get your way? To some people, it's the ultimate importance. In marriage, be careful. Be careful about pushing your way. It's a fight, isn't it? Who's going to do it? Who's going to get their way? And there are some people, that's the ultimate thing. Get in your way, ha, I got one over him. Or I got one over her, right? Uh, it's the ultimate thing for people. How important is it to get your way? Why people fight about it to get in their way. And until they don't get their way, they don't stop fighting. That's that personality, a very strong personality, controlling people. James 5, chapter 4 talks about wars and greed. Where do they come from? Isn't it from your selfishness, wanting to get your way? James chapter 4. The fight comes because of selfishness. And God wants us to show others that we are under his rule and control. And so that natural strength and temper, God wants to control it and restrain it. This is what the soldiers were like. That's what God is saying. You have that personality. You're like those soldiers. Stop. Don't use them. 
Don't use it. God can use you, but show kindness, show meekness. How on earth are we going to be able to do that? Right? How on earth are we going to control that lust, that greed? Well, verse 15. Now, while people were in a state of expectation, all wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Messiah. I mean, he spoke so powerful. People said, man, this has to be the Messiah. Not quite. John said to them, as for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I will, I, that I am not fit to untie uh, the, the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. When we have done all this, when we have turned from sin, and when we become honest, and we have become generous and kind and sought the Lord's will for our lives, and not our own selfish will, and be willing to be used by the Lord, and be willing to use all that we have for the kingdom of God, and be willing to not use people and not abuse them in the sense of controlling them, and our temper is under the control of the Holy Spirit, then, then, and only then, they could see what Jesus is going to do. John the Baptist says, look what's coming. Oh, there's one greater than I am. In fact, uh, I'm not even worthy to be the second slave. That's what John would have said, the second slave, because the second slave is the one that you come into your house and he would take your shoes. The bottom slave, the ultimate slave, the, the one that was at the lowest, actually washed your feet. And you can kind of figure out where Jesus stood. John was a really humble man, but there was nobody more humble than Jesus. He has to be the one that really washed your feet. But he talks about fire, the baptism of fire, the Holy Spirit in with fire. Now, in previously, John has said the fire is the judgment of God, is the wrath of God previously in the first few verses, that God is, has a fire for those who have no righteousness of their own and have not produced fruit in correspondence with repentance. See, the fruit here is the behavior corresponding with repentance. Have you repented? Well, we have to see love in your life. We have to see kindness and meekness and generosity and self-control. If that has not happened in people's hearts, it's really hard to say whether that person is under the rulership of Jesus or in his kingdom or, or being submitted to him. If they're not being honest, if they're not being generous, it's not being loving and showing uh, restraint in their lives, you could say, well, something's going on in there. And they might be one of those people who says, what do we do? We know the wrath is coming. What do we do? Well, the fire here that John is talking about is the fire of God's judgment, of course. But who is going to be able to stand? Only those who have submitted to the Lord. Because he says, he will give you the Holy Spirit and fire. Notice the order, the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, fire is still a judgment, but for the believers, not the ultimate judgment of sin and the ultimate judgment of hell or wrath. Very different words. Here's the judgment, of course, of refining. It's still a refinement. It's still fire. It's still a thing of judgment into your life. But the Lord can refine us in order to get closer to him. The more refinement is needed for a believer, when you come to Christ, the more refinement is needed. And we might be scared of a lot of things, especially this year, right? This year comes in and trouble in the economy, trouble in the world, and, and uh, will God take care of us, you know? But God himself, that's why it says, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. God will give you the strength to turn and repent from those things. That's what, that's what is needed in order to be honest and in order to have integrity in order to turn from those things you need the power of the holy spirit god will give you the strength to turn and god will give you the strength to continue but it's our part to turn to him the holy spirit will show us how to get out of those things how to get out of the world and will be able to overcome all that greed and dishonesty that is in the world 
And when we put ourselves in the world and, you know, being in it but not of it, how do you not get contaminated? It's the Holy Spirit working in your heart to show you, hey, honesty, integrity, kindness, meekness, love of God, bear fruit worthy or in corresponding with repentance. And we'll be able to overcome. And the Lord Jesus is going to burn everything out of your life that is not needed. Right? It's that holy fire. It's that refinement fire. We're so scared of it, isn't it? So scared because God might get rid of things that we really like. But it's not in corresponding with his will. That's the biggest fear, isn't it? To have things in your life that you really, really, really enjoy. And God says, put that down. Put that down. It's not for me. You're not doing it for me. You're not doing it unto me. And we'll be afraid, we'll afraid of that process because God knows what we need. And the strength of God will be given to us to turn away. But it begins with humility, responding to God by forgiving people. <gasps> forgiving people and having mercy on people. Well, who are the hardest people to forgive? Anybody? Who are the hardest people to forgive? Those closest to us, those who have hurt us. And that could be the closest people to us. Most of the time, it's people that hurt us the most. By forgiving people and giving mercy to people. And mercy has to do with that they don't deserve it. I like to forgive people that are kind to me. Notice that? I like to forgive people that like me. Don't you? But what about people that don't like you? Use you, abuse your name. But that's the walk of humility. What's that, Frank? Say it loud. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Forgiving people. And it begins to let go of the things that are nearest to you. That could be resources and money and finance and be able to ge be generous with that. Ooh. And God is able to change people here, soldiers, tax collectors. If God is able to change them, would he not be able to change you, Right. Here are the people, not highly educated, the people of the land, not very wealthy, not influential, but God is able to change them. God is able to baptize them in the Holy Spirit, and God is able to bring them through refinement because they know him. See, the prophet Daniel and his friends were not afraid of the fiery furnace or the lion's den. They knew being in Babylon and they knew being in Persia, that could happen. It was a risk being in that kingdom, but they trusted God and they were not afraid. They were not afraid of the work. They were not afraid of God's or the future that God held for them because they knew the presence of God was with them, the Holy Spirit. And this is the prophetic voice of John. You want to follow Jesus? This is what you need to do. These are the marks of a disciple. Don't be just a hearer. Don't be just a convert. Don't come and, I want to get baptized. Because some of them came from, they want to get baptized. And they still ask, what do we do? They're still not clear. Well, now they know. And people want to become converts in a lot of ways. They hear a message, they get stirred up, but they do nothing about it. Here John says, you want to follow Jesus? You want to be a disciple? Start with this. Start with simple, three simple things that are written, and I mean simple meaning that it's pretty easy to determine what they are. You know, kindness, generosity, love, forgiveness, merciful to people. And all those things Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Mercy, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who have come under the kingdom. The fruits of repentance, we need to grow. They need to grow in our hearts. And so as we look at 2021, down the hallway of 2021, we say, Lord, I've been a convert perhaps, but have I been a disciple? 
have I truly have the marks of a disciple? Have, I, have my fruit has become, has a dwindle? Uh, the fruit of forgiveness, the fruit of truth, the fruit of honesty, of love and of mercy, have they disappeared? Because this year has been so hard. It's been really hard to forgive people and love people. And it's just been like, ugh, tense. And God may stir our hearts today to the truth and to speak truthfully. Verse 19, but when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by John because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod added to this and he locked up John out. See, when you speak the truth, don't expect people to, to follow you or to be popular. Uh, you confront people about their sin, this is what's going to happen. People are going to hear it and not like it. Herod did not like it. Herod had taken his brother's wife, Herodias, Philip's wife, and taken it for his own wife. And because John said, you see that king up there in that, in that hill, Machaerus, that, uh, that, that great fortress, his palace, that's where it was. See that guy up there? Even he needs to repent. Even the king or the tetrarch needs to repent. And Herod did not like it. And he says, well, kind of lock him up. Eventually, he cost him his head. But Matthew probably heard John and Zacchaeus heard John and other people heard John and they followed Jesus when they saw him. And in the last days, it will be the same. The voice of God will be like John's voice. Share with the needy. Don't do anything by force. Be content with what you have. God has prepared a great reward for you. Amen. Don't go out of the way to manipulate people and, and seek after people and controlling them. Don't do that because the Lord is coming. And when the great tribulation comes upon the earth, which will come, the Holy Spirit is going to be right with us. And we won't be afraid We'll have the strength because we have already been baptized in fire. God has already drove the dross out. God has already drove all the things in the refinement process. So you can praise God while you're standing in it. And Jesus will call us by name. And Jesus will reward us. Well done, good and faithful servant. And God is going to comfort us. And God's going to give us more than what we ever imagined in his kingdom because we forgave, because we were gentle, because all those things, then God will return to us those things, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and now the Lord will be our shepherd. So let's finish with this. We begin the new year. We'll begin the new year. What is today? The 28th today? Seventh. Okay. Uh, so we've got about four more days or so. And as we begin the new year, this is John's message. This is God's prophetic voice for Israel. I believe in a very real way. This is God's word for us today, that God will speak to us through John and his message. But not just John's message, because it continued. Jesus was coming. Verse 21, Jesus came. And we need the message of John, but we need the message of Jesus too. And we need to hear God's message of repentance and forgiveness of sin. It's like a checkup. You ever gone to a doctor? Medical checkup? Do you know why people don't want to go for a medical checkup? Think something's wrong. Oh, my blood pressure's too high. This and that. I haven't eaten well, right? And then you fear it. You're like, oh, I don't want to hear it. And this is John's medical examination. He's checking. This is why people don't like it, because it may be hitting something that needs to be touched upon so that we can change, then we can turn. And so John was getting people to get ready for Jesus to come. And I think that's what this message is for. We looked at Christmas, we looked at John, we looked at his birth, we looked at Jesus coming into the world, and now John's message, Jesus is coming. And these people were going to, were going to experience that. They were going to experience the coming of Jesus. 
And is it wonderful? Many of them were ready. Many of them were ready because the message of John, they were ready to follow Jesus. And I think for us, it's just follow the same way. John's message is for us, but also the ministry of John can be for us as well, as God will raise us up to be not just a prophet, as it were, John or Elijah and things like that, but like we talked about on Wednesday, God given us a message, the word of God. Oh, would all of God's people, said Moses, be prophets, meaning proclaim the word of God. Oh, if we could give our mouth to God. Oh, if we could only give our mouth to the Lord. And I think this year people make resolutions. You know, they're fun. They like it. I need to lose a few pounds. That's true. You know, whatever resolution you may have. But one great resolution is to say, Lord, have my mouth. Have my mouth. Proclaim your word through me. It may mean that I might go through a refining process, refining process. It may mean, Lord God, I may turn from this, maybe this honesty and lack of truth in my life and hiding things. It may mean, Lord God, that I, I stop lusting and greed. And it may mean, Lord God, that I must be generous with the work that you give, the resources you've given me. All those things apply. But Lord, make me a mouth. Make me a mouth for you. Make me a voice for you. And that's all that John was because he didn't know when Jesus was coming. Well, he knew in verse 21, he saw him and he said, oh Lord, it's time. It's time for the gospel to be preached by Jesus. And so it's time when the nation is an uproar and nations are in an uproar, God steps in. And whatever you are and whatever nation you may live, God will step in through a vessel, a vessel that's willing, a mouth that's willing. John the Baptist was there. I see others here that may be willing to take on the call of God to be his mouth. But that mouth needs to refine, isn't it? That mouth has to go through a refining process. Oh, I think that's why people sometimes don't say, Lord, whatever you want in me, I'll do it. Because there needs to be a refinement. But those who take on that call, the marks of a disciple, the Lord will use tremendously. And at the end, you know what you get is, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, oh, so practical is John. It's so practical, people may tune out for a while and say, well, what does that mean? But Lord, you show us what that means. Uh, the things you've given us, the things we have, the things we hide, the things that are not in honesty and in truth, the things we have become like the world and greedy and selfishness and, and, and lack of love and forgiveness and lack of mercy and lack of uh, love and forgiveness to those who have hurt us the most. Lord, we may have become like the world and we don't like to hear it because it's, we, we think we're better. But Lord, help us to see ourselves through you, your eyes. And Lord, turn away from the things that really hurt you, really you consider sin, and turn toward you, Lord, with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our soul, and to love you, Lord. Because ultimately, Lord, that's the calling of a disciple is to love you and love others. And so, Lord, that is demonstrated in our actions. So, Lord, use our mouth today. Use our call, the calling that you've given us. But, Lord, we also invite you to refine us it may be very difficult for all of us to make that prayer, but Lord, refine us in where you see fit, in what you see fit. As David said in the Old Testament, Lord, search me, search me and know me. 
See if there's any way wicked, any wicked way in me. And Lord, that's what we're asking today. This coming year, Lord, we pray for our family and our loved ones, Lord God. And, and perhaps we haven't been a good testimony to them because we've lacked the marks of a disciple. Lord, I pray we would not just be converts or hearers only, but we would be doers, we'd be disciples, we'd be the ones who follow in your steps. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and mercy that you demonstrated your love for us. Lord God, when we were yet sinners, you died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, the one who fulfilled the law for the ones who broke the law. And so, Lord, we ask you this morning to come into our hearts, to change us and mold us, to let the Holy Spirit into us, Lord, to baptize us in the Holy Spirit, to give us the fire for refinement, but the power of the Spirit to live. So, Lord, thank you for this time. And we look forward to this coming year, 2021, maybe more difficult than this one. It may have more struggles. It may have less struggles in some ways, but more struggles in other ways. Lord, prepare us and make us a mouth, Lord, for that's what you're looking for, a vehicle, a vessel, a mouth to proclaim Jesus to come. And, Lord, such parallels for John from John. He was preparing people for Jesus to come, and we are preparing people for Jesus to come. So, Lord, baptize us in your spirit. Fill us all. Take our mouth and use them. And we pray, Lord God, that we will proclaim your good news until you come. In Jesus' name, amen. 